This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and on the other line, longtime friend of the pod, John Taylor. John, good evening. How are you? I am doing all right. How about yourself? I am not doing as well as uh, DJ LeMayhew's publicist, I imagine, is doing these days, but um, doing pretty well, I think. It's good. I mean, it's, it's hard to be doing any better than DJ LeMayhew, although he is like, as we're talking, he's already struck out mm, twice. So that brings so. his average down the last 11 games to, like, what, 543? Like a solid 700, somewhere around there. Um, it's, this is where we got to start because DJ LeMahieu, um, he has a very real chance at the AL MVP at this point. Uh, would you say that's, that's a fair assessment at, uh, late June that, or early July, excuse me, I can't believe it's already July, um, that DJ LeMahieu has a very real shot at winning the AL MVP. It's fair insofar as, I mean, obviously you know this and everyone listening knows this, like, you know, it, it's it's still way too early to say with such things. We still have three full months of the season to go. Lots can happen. And two, I mean, it, I mean, oh, Mike Trout is my, Mike Trout if the season we're in today is my MVP pick. Um, I don't really see a case for LeMahieu over Trout, even as good as LeMahieu has been. But, and this is, this is always the crucial but that exists with, the Mike Trout MVP conversation that keeps um, kicking him squarely in the ass every time out that voters always seem to be happy to invent or find narratives in which Trout is not the most valuable mm-hmm. player. Uh, we saw that obviously early in his career with Miguel Cabrera. We saw that with Josh Donaldson, with Jose Altuve, with, with Mookie Betts last year. And granted, this is not to say that those players did not have good years that were deserving of MVP awards in pretty much all of those cases there is a there is a very good argument for those players like i'm not going to say that come out and say mookie Betts should not have been the mvp josh donaldson shouldn't have been so jose altuve shouldn't have been they all had very very good years but trout was just as good if not better in some cases 
And I think it's very easy for writers or for the BBWA, which I'm a member, but I um, obviously I, I don't know if I'll have an MVP vote at the end of the year because they, they only tell you right before it, basically right really? before it happens. Uh, well, not right before, but like you, you only get like a, a couple huh. weeks notice or or a few weeks notice. Yeah, you don't. They don't tell you before the season, like, hey, you're going to be voting on this, um, because they rotate it, you know. And in huh. a chapter, I'm in the New York chapter, and that's a huge chapter. So odds are, I probably will not I have to not vote um, for any of the major awards. Yeah, huh. it's crazy. But regardless, like the BBWA seemingly just finds Trout's excellence boring, and I, and I don't get it. I mean, he, I mean, he, weighing the two against each other, Trout has the better overall season line. He's got a higher on base percentage, I believe a higher slugging percentage, a higher OPS plus, a higher weighted runs created plus, a higher wins above replacement, I believe both baseball reference and fan graphs. Probably baseball perspectives, wins above replacement player too. I haven't looked at that. Um, he is a better defender at a harder position. He is a better base runner. There's no, the only, the, the argument, here's the argument DJ LeMay who has. One, he has a higher batting average, much higher. Two, He's coming off a ludicrous month of June, which obviously is not going to matter one iota when it comes to awards voting, but it's, you know, it's why he's in the conversation now. Three, he has been arguably, maybe not even arguably, I don't really think there's much of a close competition. He's been the Yankees' best offensive player. I think the only real competition he's had there is Gary Sanchez, which of course matters, you know, and which ties into four. He helped keep them not just afloat, but excellent when everyone else was hurt, when Aaron Judge was down, when Giancarlo Stanton was down, when... Actually, when Sanchez himself was down, when Didi Gregorius was out, uh, everyone, name name a player, and they have missed time for the Yankees this year, except Mm -hmm. DJ LeMahieu. And I will also give him credit that even though he's not as good a defender as Trout, he he is a good defender at multiple positions. He's played second, he's played third. With Luke Voigt down, he is probably going to play some first base, along with Edwin Encarnacion. Um, So there's a lot to like about DJ LeMahieu, and I think the other thing that, that, you know, people can kind of point to his favor and this is his, his production with runners in scoring position where he's hitting like 500 and runners in scoring position with two outs where he's hitting also close to 500. So he's getting it done in those, you know, clutch late high leverage situations that are always kind of part and parcel to, you know, a good solid MVP case. So, you know, I, you, the, the, the pieces of DJ LeMay's MVP case and so much as we can actually argue about this stuff in July, you know, the beginning of July before even the all-star break, is basically that he's a great hitter. He's done it with runners in the scoring position, runners on base, which is obviously huge. He's played multiple positions. He's been the most important player on the Yankees. I struggled to think of who even is number two at this point. Maybe Sanchez, maybe Glaber Torres, uh, maybe given what they've produced relative to expectations, guys like Gio Urshela or Cameron Mabin certainly were enormous in keeping that team uh, productive and winning. So, but it just to the end to me at the end of the day it does not add up to being better than Mike Trout because that is such a high bar to clear. It, it, it really is to the point where I'm just thinking to myself, you know, at this point the American League just needs two MVP awards: the one we give Trout because he's the best player in the American League every single year, no matter like even when he's hurt, even when he misses time, he still puts up figures that are right there with the best players who play a full season. And then the MVP award for any for everybody else, all the non-Trout guys. Because it's just it's just unfair to Trout at this point that he seemingly has to put together like a Barry Bonds 2001 season to to be able to outdistance the guys who are having great years by their standards but not as good as Trout. And I know this kind of gets into the 
the, the weird kind of gray area of, okay, how are you defining most valuable? What does that mean? And I understand that's a purely subjective thing. You know, value is a subjective idea. And, you know, the case for LeMay, who I think with that most valuable idea is, well, he's a valuable player to the Yankees. He has been the most important piece of their team and has been the most important piece of a team that has that is on pace to win like 110 games or something. To me, though, for me, most valuable pretty much just means best. And it's just, it, to me, it's that sense of like, how can you, the way I break it down is how can you be the most valuable player by being the best player? You be the best player you can be on your own, do the best at everything you can, you are invariably going to contribute the most value to your team. And that's, that is what Trout does. He is the best hitter, defender, and base runner on his team. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, and yeah, I, I, I don't know the Angels terribly like, well, like I don't watch enough Angels baseball to say like that maybe that definitively, but I don't think it's a stretch to assume that. It's not his fault that the rest of the Angels are not as good as him. For one, it'd be impossible for them to be as good as him. Well, I think Shohei Otani is probably the closest you can humanly wow. get on that team. No respect for being as good as He's like 17 dingers this year. No respect for David mm-hmm. Fletcher. No respect for, for Martin Maldonado, who I think is on the Angels. Tim Salmon. Yeah, Justin Upton is... You know, Justin Upton is still only like 31 is, years old. Is that true? Justin Upton. He's 31? Yeah. 30, 31 or 32 or something. He is we found still, out that Cameron Maben's like 34 somehow. He's. I don't want to think about that one either. It's just because like guys like Upton and Maben debuted when they were mm. like 19. So they, and is they've just been around forever. 44 um, or 24? Who's to say? Thrillage. Mm-hmm. This is going to get into some <laughs> wild love. I know Elijah Dukes was a very bad person, but that's inevitably where this is leading. Mm. Like, at one point, I, this is a total tangent, but it just reminds me that at one point the Nationals had an outfield of Lastings Millage, Elijah Dukes, and Niger Morgan, a.k.a. Tony Flush, which I think is the stupidest outfield that's ever been assembled just in terms of, like, wackiness. Because, mm. man, there was a lot going on with those three guys. Again, Elijah Dukes' is part of it isn't funny because he is genuinely a bad person who was, like, like assaulted his pregnant wife and then texted her a photo of a gun at one point. But it's like, we are, we, I had, how did we even get to this point? Mm-hmm. Regardless, I think we're just naming bad angels players Mike that Trout. were not as good as Mike Trout. And, uh, we're, yeah. we are, rem- we are remembering some mm-hmm. angels. This is, this is how we get down the road. So like you said, the Tim Salmon. <laughs> yes. Um, but regardless to me, Mike Trout, by being the best player, Mike Trout is the most valuable player. Mike Trout can't help the fact that the rest of the angels aren't as good as he is. You know, he is one man on a 25-man team. There's only so much he can realistically do. And yet he's still on, he's like, his, he's on pace for like an 11 or 12 war season. It, I just, I don't understand how, just by what he does and how good he is, like the, the kind of pretzel you have to contort yourself into to define most valuable as, you know, DJ LeMahieu being the best player on his team, but somehow Mike Trout being the best player on his team doesn't matter as much. Just because the DJ LeMay who has better teammates than Mike Trout does, it's just it's unfair to Trout, and that's what this is, this all ends up boiling down to, is we end up rewarding players not so much for their individual seasons, because again, guys like Donaldson and Betts and Altuve all had great individual seasons, but for the fact that they did it for winning teams, you know, they all did it for teams that made the playoffs or were just super great like Betts last year, you know, Donaldson being the engine of that Blue Jays team that made the playoffs and was also a fantastic defender at third. Or, or for or for crazy individual accomplishments like Miggy Cabrera winning the Triple Crown. Like, 
which really like just because he had the best batting average, the most home runs and the highest RBI total, who cares? You know, what, what is, what does that mean nowadays? The Russell Westbrook you know? argument. So, and I, and I, I don't, I really don't feel like relitigating. I don't, I, I don't know why I'm getting it. I don't want to relitigate the no, Trout Cabrera wars just of the go. early. 45 yeah. minutes. Cabrera versus. Nope. 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 Hold nope. on. I'm going to get Mike Lupica on the those line. Hold on one second. Uh, John, can you, can you hold on for one second? Battles are so horrible. Um, and again, this is to take nothing away from LeMahieu. He's had a terrific season and has been a huge part of that Yankees team. And, you know, is, is definitely, you know, if he keeps this kind of production up, you know, I, the, the, to me, what I, why I see him as the kind of favorite to, to like overtake Trout at this point, not maybe not the favorite to overtake, but the kind of guy I think that other, that when, when, the, when the awards ballot season happens, he's going to get some high placement if he keeps this up. Is just because he has been so important to the Yankees, and because the Yankees are going to win the division and are presumably going to go deep in the playoffs, and that's all going to matter. I know the MVP award is only supposed to consider regular season performance, but it, it just feels like to me it always feels inevitable with every AL MVP race that there's always Mike Trout and the guy who ends up beating Mike Trout because he had a he had an unbelievably great season for a contending team, and right now that's Lemayhew, and. You know, I think if LeMahieu slows down, that's the thing. There's always someone else. If LeMahieu slows down, maybe that becomes Alex Bregman. If it's not Bregman and the and the A's, you know, continue to, to to get back in this race, maybe it's Matt Chapman who's also having a great year. You know, maybe it's a guy like if he gets hot again, Jorge Polanco, or further down, maybe it's Joey Gallo if he has a monster second half. And that's the other thing. A, a you know, a guy who has a huge second half can always do this too. So. It's it's just frustrating me because I every every year in the American League, Mike Trout is the best player, not just the American League, he's the best player in baseball, period. This year is really the only real competition he's ever had in that category because of the you know, Christian Yelich and Cody Bellinger doing what they're doing. But and I, I think Trout is even in war with I think Bellinger in baseball reference war. I think I think he might have passed him in fan graphs war. I'm not hundred percent on that one. But regardless, like you know, this is, this is what happens every year. And I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to be, you know, all, Oh, it's going to happen again this year because there's way too much season left, you know? And if Trout gets hurt tomorrow and blows out his knee, well then obviously that conversation's over right then and there. But to me, like LeMahieu's MVP candidacy in so much as you can have one at the beginning of July, isn't just what he's done on the field. It's a, it's what he's done on the field for the team he's done it, which is going to give him that theoretical leg up when it comes to that conversation about him versus Trout. Because you always see this whenever you treat, tweet about Trout as the MVP, you always get guys coming out of the woodwork. You're like, how can you be the MVP for a last place team? Which admit, the Angels aren't, but how can you be an MVP for a 500 team? Because like, he's, he's the best player on the team, and he's the best player in the league. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the team does around him because he can't control – the great majority of that he can only do it's what he basketball. can do and he does it better basketball than is, anyone it's else a lot alive. easier to decipher um player value but even basketball suffers from this to some extent where it's like the i mean the rockets uh being as good as they are in the regular season um helps james harden and the way he plays in the regular season it's just different but like would anybody take Kawhi leonard behind james harden no but like Kawhi leonard had no shot at winning uh MVP because he played and he, he missed 20 games like that's that's just part of it and like you could make the same Mike Trout case for LeBron for years um and just uh it, it's yeah and difficult. I think I think yeah. that ends up being like the most 
I think LeBron ends up being the most kind of the best kind of analog for him because I think LeBron also suffers from that same or has suffered in the past, certainly not this year, but in years previous from that kind of fatigue of like, oh, he's the best player alive. Like we're bored of this. Essentially, you just you get used to it to a certain degree where it's like someone else having a crazy season just jumps out, I think, all the more. And like you said, basketball is different because basketball has that whole individual dominance like factor to take into account with, you know, where you just, you can't do that in baseball. You know, a guy like Trout cannot single-handedly take over a game to the, to the same degree that a guy like, like Harden can or Kawhi Leonard or Giannis or, or LeBron or any one of those other guys where they can just, they can almost single-handedly, they can win a game by themselves or Steph Curry or Kevin Durant or whatever, you know, Trout can do everything. He can go four for four with four home runs and the angels could still lose, you know? And that's got to be extremely it's, frustrating um, if you're Mike Trout. But then again, he did sign. It's just frustrating because long term. So um, Mike Trout is. It, it's just frustrating that it gets held against yeah. him almost. That the Angels are not as good when that's not his fault. He's not the general manager of the Angels. He's not the manager of the Angels. He's not the owner of the Angels. Although I guess he could probably buy them at this point if he wanted to. Um, he is just a guy doing his best, and his best is also happens to be better than anyone else mm-hmm. on the planet. So to me, it's like that's not a hard conversation at that point about MVP. Yeah, the hard conversation is when, when he does I mean, the things I mean, he does. West, but in the NL, it's yeah the Bellinger the Bellinger Yelich debate. I I have no idea who's the MVP there because they're both great. You know, it, it's probably I'm not even going to wade into it because I don't know their stats well enough. I I haven't kind of looked at that race. But yeah, that that's a much tougher one. Every other race at this point is much tougher. AL Cy Young, NL MVP. I guess NL Cy Young is pretty straightforward with Max Scherzer at this moment. But, like, and again, like, there's no doing MVP or doing awards race stuff at this time of year. It's just, you know, you're, you only have, what, three full months of, of stats to work with, and you still have another mm-hmm. three coming. You know, an injury could, you see how easily, like, you know, Joey Gallo and George Springer were both, you know, in that MVP conversation at the end of at the end of May, they both get hurt. They both miss pretty much the entire month of June, and now they have you know a hundred plate appearances deficit, so to speak, to all the guys at the, who would be at the top of that list. So things can change just like that. You know, all it takes is one bad month, and it's over. You know, DJ LeMahieu might hit two hundred for the month of July, and that's the end of that. You know, and maybe maybe this time next month we're talking about you know Alex Bregman's MVP candidacy against Trout or Chat or Matt Chapman's or you know. Some other some other dude who just comes out of nowhere the same way LeMahieu did, um, but to me it's just it is just so hard to imagine a player can have a season that much better than Mike Trout's that he can be that better set that much better than a healthy Mike Trout if Trout plays a full season which he is close to on pace to do I think he missed like a week and a half or so um, back in like May I think with an injury but he's going to end up playing close to a full season if he doesn't get hurt again. It's it's impossible to imagine someone being better than him over a full season. It's just it takes an incredible amount. It takes what DJ LeMahieu did for five straight months. That's that's just crazy. And that's just if anything, that just says so much about how good Trout is that he is basically just doing that every single month. You know? Yeah, and I don't think this is going to change anytime soon. Trout's 27. He's going to continue being very good at baseball for a long time. And we're going to have these seasons pop up 
over and over again, like you said, and it's just going to be the same conversation year after year. And um, I think eventually you're going to lose your mind. So unfortunately, John, this is not going to get better for you. And oh, I've, I've already, I've, I've okay. already lost my mind. That, that thing, Fisher. that thing disappeared a long time ago. That's true. I have, I have my dog to keep me relatively sane. Do you think playing in Colorado? The last couple of years, I mean, DJ LeMahieu is 30. Um, it's easy to forget, like, the gold gloves and the batting title. Like, I'd forgotten about that. Like, he's a, it's strange that he's, like, an easily forgettable player, and I wonder if that's just part of being a, a good offensive player in Colorado for years. Um, well, we think the same way about Nolan Arenado and just guys before him. Pre- um, like, we can go up and down the list. I mean, Todd Helton, uh, Brad Hopp. Um, so many great ones, so many Colorado legends that, uh, I'm blanking on right now, but, um, do you think it hurt him at all playing in Colorado for the last couple of years? Because when you read the quotes about Chris Iannetta and Brett Gardner, when they talk about him and what happened there and, um, why he got a two year, $24 million deal, it seems like their rationale for why he got a super utility role and the best offer reportedly, uh, from Brian Cashman came from the Yankees. Um, and the Rockies didn't really do much to try and re-sign him, but also because they did have uh, their top prospect being a second baseman uh, who needed playing time coming up this year and all this other stuff. But um, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting that all the players seem to, maybe this is hindsight, it's 2020, but they all seem to believe that they saw something in LeMahieu and thought it was weird that he got kind of frozen out this winter and that he was always going to have this kind of potential i mean you travis sawcheck and jeff sullivan and other guys like that have written about him and have kind of pegged him as an interesting baseball internet darling but um i don't know like it's it does feel like it came out of nowhere but then it just i guess depends on who you've been reading and who you've been listening to but it seems like the players knew and certain front office types knew but not everybody knew so um what do you think do you think playing in colorado hurt him at all I mean, it certainly did in the year he won the batting title. I think there's a lot that's been said and written, I think, about the Coors effect, both in terms of, you know, um, playing it, playing there and then also playing on the road and how hard it is for hitters to adjust to playing on the road after they play at Coors and just the kind of the weirdness. Like, I think you look at a guy like Charlie Blackman, who's having one of the most extreme, like, home road season splits ever this year. He's, he's hitting, like, 450 at home and, like, 220 on the road or something. Um, Sam Miller just had a thing today about how Coors Field's offense has just gone completely bonkers this season, probably tied um, to the juice ball, which is way more air, which in, you know, thin air of Coors Field means it's basically just uh, Did you understand ball. that explanation but, from Manfred on what's going on with the ball? I, I mean, as far as they, they just made it sound basically like the ball – they don't know why, but there's something with different about the pill in yeah, the center I, of the they ball. They all talk about this like I'm supposed to understand what this this actually means. I was listening to it. I was like, am I an idiot? I don't know what he's talking about. To me, it's not so much like what it means. It's the fact that it's like MLB is basically admitting something is different about the ball. But we don't know why or how it's your or ball. what or when that happens. How do you not know? <laughs> And it's just the idea too. It's like, oh no, all the balls are made to certain specifications. It's like, but they're all stitched by hands. So maybe that's part of it. It's just crazy to me that the ball is just different. The MLB has come out and said, yes, yeah, something is different about the ball, but we can't say exactly what, and we don't know how to change. Like maybe I don't. Well, they didn't say we don't know how to change it, but the implication is we don't know why that happened. 
we just don't. And it's just that's that's just it though. The ball's just different. You just have to accept that. It's really strange. It it's weird. It it's really weird. And so of course it contributes to stuff like, you know, Coors being an absolute lunatic asylum this year, or the home run rate being super spiked or, or and all that other stuff. But um I I don't think necessarily Colorado hurt LeMayhew. I mean, I think it it could have had a negative effect, but I think obviously as you're seeing, it's like he's fine now. You know, he got out of there. I think there probably is something to be said about getting out of there if you're a good hitter and not having to adjust to the weirdness of it. I don't know. Someone this would actually be an interesting thing to ask LeMayhew. Um, you know, just to get his thoughts on like, do you think it is better for you or do you think it has helped you at all that you're just playing in normal like mm-hmm. hitting environments on a regular basis? as opposed to, you know, half your series in the most hitter-friendly ballpark in, in the majors and half your time elsewhere where things are just weird and different. I, I don't know. And LeMahieu was also always, like every other Rockies hitter, a big home road splits guy. Um, so I, I don't know. I'd, I'd be actually be interested to ask LeMahieu about that or to have someone ask LeMahieu about that, I guess to see what the, if he has any thoughts on that. Although from what I've, you know, the, the couple of times I've talked to DJ LeMay, he's a pretty, he's a, he's not exactly the most expansive talker. So I don't know, maybe, maybe the secret will go with him to his grave. I assume you had uh, DJ LeMayhew, um in his prime as the first guy to have a real shot at winning the batting title in both the NL and the AL, right? Like that. Uh, oh yeah. This is totally, totally saw this one coming. I just can't believe that hasn't happened yet. When I first saw that reading Bob Nightingale's story on USA Today, I was like, wait a second, how is that not a thing? How has that not happened yet? You would think that that's happened at some point, but it has not. And he has a real chance at winning the batting title in both leagues, which is just... Yeah, I didn't I didn't actually know that was a thing. I didn't know that that had never been right. done before. And it's going to be LeMahieu, apparently. Or he has a, a very real shot, because... Um, He's batting 345. It's a league-leading batting average. Uh, 108 hits, 60 runs, 61 RBIs to go along with a 486 batting average, which seemed pretty good um, with runners in scoring position. So he's getting a hit every other time there's a runner in scoring position, which seems good. Yeah, he he um he has not had a hitless game since June 13th. Although I believe he is hitless mm. tonight. So that that streak may be in jeopardy. So can I give you another great nugget um, on the Yankees and their uh, acquisition of DJ LeMahieu this winter? Yeah, Yankees go for it. special assistant, Jim Hendry. <clears throat> did you know he was a special assistant in New York right now? Okay. I did indeed. Um, he knew LeMahieu when he played at LSU and drafted him 10 years ago as GM of the Chicago Cubs. And was the guy in Brian Cashman's ear all winter to sign him. So if you want to know, Yankees fans, why Manny yep. Machado is not in pinstripes, don't blame Steinbrenner. Don't blame, blame Brian Cashman. Blame Jim, Hen- Jim Hendry. He's the guy who got you DJ LeMahieu. Which is it's funny because, you know, with the whole idea, it's like, oh, they, they picked LeMahieu over, over Machado. I mean, they picked LeMahieu to be a kind of super utility mm-hmm. guy, and LeMahieu just ended up taking a starter's role because Andahar got hurt, and um, I mean, Didi was hurt, and was yeah. that the I mean, Yeah, it's because everyone right. got hurt; they just needed guys to fill spots, and so LeMahieu just ended up with a full-time role, and now he's been so good that there's, you know, and it's not as you know, Andahar is obviously done for the season. Um, you're not going to play Gio Urshela over DJ LeMahieu. 
you know, you don't, it, it would it wouldn't make any sense for LeMahieu to go into a super utility role now, even with all the additions the Yankees have made. Um, so it's just, it's the thing. It's like, it, it is obviously a great thing for the Yankees that, you know, Hendry got his guy or got Cashman to get his guy. It has worked out beautifully for them. But of course the opportunity is always there for them to get Manny Machado anyway, to displace Miguel Andujar and keep LeMahieu around in a utility role and then just either trade Andujar or do something else with him. I guess. I don't know what, um, obviously things didn't work out that way. And it's, and the other thing is like, for as, for as great as LeMahieu has been, uh, I think this Yankees team would have been even that much better off if they'd signed Manny Machado too. Um, I know he got off to a slow start in San Diego, but he is absolutely tearing it up right now. As shockingly, the twenty, the twenty-eight year old or twenty-seven or however old Manny Machado is, a uh, superstar on a Hall of Fame track is hitting like a superstar who's on a Hall of Fame track. It's a big surprise for all of us. Um, I think we're all pretty stunned at Manny Machado uh, turning it around at some point this season. Um, the last thing on the the Mayhew stuff, and then we'll move on. Cashman buried in the story, I thought was interesting. He said he did not, uh, LeMahieu did not take a discount when he signed with the Yankees because it was the best deal offered to him. I don't think that's how discounts work. No, and LeMahieu obviously is one of those dudes who just got hurt by that, um, by the crappy free agent market that now exists because you know is that a, how we're gonna frame player all over these 30 now? like where dallas keichel and all these other dudes who sign it's just like he didn't take a discount because that was the best de- like that's not a discount that what 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 yeah it's not it's not a discount when you have one offer right. and it's a bad one um just a bad offer and that's that kind of the thing like, like yeah, it's the not Yan- a discount the yankees the yankees the yankees took advantage of the fact that one there was only like one other team interested in dj lemayhew and two, that other team was the Rays, who are never going to be the team that offers the most money to anyone except for Charlie Morton, which ended up being a really smart signing for the Rays. So, no, it's not, it's not a discount. It's just that's the crappy market that screwed DJ LeMahieu. I don't necessarily know if DJ LeMahieu sh- – I mean, obviously, you know, in retrospect, yes, he should have gotten a bigger contract. You know, some team should have given him more money. But – on the other hand, he was coming off a bad season in Colorado. I think two out of his last three seasons had not been good. He is the guy who I think a lot of teams had questions about with regards to can he hit outside of Coors Field. I know, obviously, on the positive side, he'd won a batting title. He was a good, he's a great defender at second base. He's a, one of those guys every team says, you know, it's a great clubhouse dude, um, smart veteran type. But, you know, over 30, hadn't played well, um, coming, off, coming with the weird Coors effect stuff it's at least understandable, I guess, that, you know, he wasn't going to get, you know, big time, you know, he wasn't going to get a four year offer for like, you know, uh, $60 million or whatever, but somebody should have been able to give a three year deal to DJ LeMayhew. You know, someone should have been able to give three thirty nine or something or three forty five for a guy, for a guy with his resume and his, and his pedigree and all that. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not a discount when it's just all the offers are bad and you just have to choose the least bad one. Right. I just thought it was a, a silly, silly framing there. Um, but also, I feel like that's going to be a common thing where it's like he didn't take a discount; he actually got paid nicely. It's like, well, no, that was that was it, and y'all all gave him bad deals, and this is what he had to take. Um, the Nationals, happier news there uh, after the the start from hell, uh, mixed in with another bad season in the year one of Davey Martinez uh, experience in the managing box but the nationals 
are back in the NL East race. They're, I believe, as of this taping, they're a game over 500. Um, the Phillies have had a just a, the worst kind of June imaginable, while the Braves won 11 to 15 against division rivals in May. I mean, in June, so things are just kind of shaping up to make it a two-team race. I think last time I checked, Fangraphs gave like the the Nationals a 61% chance of making the playoffs uh, at this point. Um, it's it's interesting. How have the Nationals battled back in the NL East? Uh, it starts with Max Scherzer, who just had one of the best pitching seasons a pitcher, or one of the best months a pitcher's had in, like, years. I think since, like, Pedro, 99. He just had a, a month where he put up a 1 ERA in 45 innings with, like, 68 strikeouts. When you have a guy doing what he does every five days, it makes it that much easier um, for things to get better. Two, I think, you know, they're healthy or they're getting healthy again. You know, they got Trey Turner back. Um, they got Rendon is getting, is obviously moving past the injuries he had. Um, they've got Matt Adams back as a useful bat off the bench. I think too, you know, Juan Soto is um, rebounded from kind of a slow start. Um, you know, unexpected good season out of Howie Kendrick, although I think he's probably slowing down a little bit. I think it just helps for a while there, the Nats really were, kind of just getting clobbered by injuries and just didn't have anyone healthy, especially didn't have any depth in the rotation. Having Anibal Sanchez back is obviously big, although they still kind of don't really have a fifth starter. Although well, hold on. Jeremy Hellickson, can don't we have really rule him out getting it back with his, like, six FIP? Well, he's, he's on the 60-day he's on the six, he's on the 60 know, day list. He can come back. I'll never quit Jeremy Hellickson. Love him. He can. Like, obviously, Anibal Sanchez is, has been really good for them and since he did coming the same back thing with Atlanta last year. Um, Sanchez, I think he should just keep signing like one year. Or I feel like he didn't sign a one year deal with the Nationals, did he? I feel like he got. Did he get a multi year deal from them? It's two. You know, he got. Yeah. I think he got two years. But basically, it's like everyone, everyone on the Nationals in the month of June, with the exception of Victor Robles, who was pretty average. Um, Gerardo Parra, who's not. I, don't even know if he's on that team anymore. I don't think he is. I thought he was. I thought um, he was like a late sign. I thought is he's, yeah. no, he's still there, but he. He's, he's still there, but he's not he's not no. contributing anymore. And Jan Gomes, who has pretty definitively lost the, the catcher, the or he's, he's platooning, I guess you call it a platoon, not really. He's splitting time with Kurt Suzuki, but Suzuki's been hitting so well that, that Gomes isn't really a thing. Um, you know, Gomes, Para are the only guys in that lineup who did not hit in the month of June. And I kind of sort of Robles with an OPS of like 760, which is meh, but Robles does other which, things well, let me too. Point out, Regardless, the Braves did the exact survive. same thing with their lineup. Every player except for two guys in their lineup hit, yeah. and it was Marquez, it was a, um, yeah, Marquez and uh, Riley. So there you go. And then when you have Rendon and Soto all hitting super well, and when you have guys like Suzuki and Brian Dozier kind of a little back from the dead, and you have Turner back from injury, it helps. And then obviously when you have Scherzer doing what Scherzer does, it helps. And the bullpen has been much better, which granted they couldn't be any worse. So there is that, but you know, they don't have Kyle Bearclaw and Trevor Rosenthal mucking up innings as much. Um, they've, they seem to have gotten some level of competency out of just total no names like Hoppy Guerra and Tanner Rainey. It, it's still not a good bullpen. And I think that's probably, if anything, the one really big issue the nationals have, at this moment, you know, I mean, they just called up Fernando Rodney and Johnny Venters, and you should not be relying on a 42-year-old man and a three-time Tommy John recipient to do anything good in your bullpen. Um, like, 
but you know they've gotten they got a good month out of Tony Sip doing situational work. They got a good month out of Wander Suero, who seems to have become Davy Martinez's number one setup choice for Sean Doolittle. Obviously, Doolittle had a very good month because he's a very good pitcher. It's just the rest of that bullpen can't be trusted. Um, Rainey, obviously Rosenthal is gone. Bearclaw's hurt. Joe Ross is down in the minors. You know, Javi Guerra's not. Matt Gracie, they're not the guys you want to trust when things get you know you know tight in late situations. So I think that if, you know, that more than anything, it's probably where the Nationals, if they do decide to buy before the deadline or at the deadline is where they have to focus their efforts. They need to get some relief help. You know, maybe it's a guy like Will Smith or Shane Green. Um, Maybe it's, you know, someone else I'd, you know, just running through the list of sellers in my head. But, you know, there are a few guys, a few teams there, I guess, that have some some possible relief help. I mean, the Giants have, beyond Smith, they have Tony Watson and they have uh, a couple other dudes there who could get him out of there. the Mets being sellers is a thing that probably does mm-hmm. have to happen. Um, although they're they're in a, they're in a tight one with the Yankees right now, but I think you know the Mets are what ten games under five hundred at this point. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's over. Yeah, they're sorry, they're nine games under five hundred with a negative run differential. Um, you know, I think you know I don't know. Like I think Green and Smith are the ones that jump media in the mind, but Alex Colomay on the White Sox, the White Sox decide to sell. Um, Ken Giles on the Blue Jays, who's done some good setup work in the past, you know, would be a mm-hmm. good target. Uh, seeing who else is out there, you know, I don't, I don't think the Pirates are going to make Felipe Vasquez available. But if the Reds decide to pack Iglesias, in, they hold have on. Interesting Iglesias is going to be a future maybe. Brave. You can go ahead and stop going after. No, it's not going to be Iglesias. You know who it's going to be? It's going to be the the Indians closer. Oh, I always forget his name. The guy they traded for the Padres. Yeah, Brad, Brad Hand. Well, Brad, the thing with the Indians is they're right oh, in the wild card race. So, and I, I made a, I wrote about this about a week or so ago now that. Wait, I lied. It wasn't um, Brad Hand. That wasn't it. It was Ian Kennedy. That's who I said was the future brave middle uh, middle of July. Oh, he's, no, the yes. Royals. He's, he's closing. He's closing yes. to the Royals. Yeah. He's been good. Um, yeah, yeah. Say, the are, <laughs> yeah, Ian Kennedy has been weirdly good, and um, that's definitely someone where if anyone is interested, the Royals should like run to right. get rid of him because that's not a thing that's going to you know there's you sell at the highest point of value, and that's that's right now. Um, I think the only thing that's going to hurt the Nats, at least in that chase, is that everybody needs mm-hmm. relief help. Uh, the Rays need relief help. The Red Sox need relief help. The Rangers could probably use some relief help. The A's could use relief help. The, the Phillies in that own division. Obviously, you mentioned the Braves are a team that desperately needs um, good relief. Well, they've been better. The, um, the Braves' bullpen's actually been good in June, and Luke Jackson been... seems like he's got... Swarzak is a godsend. Anthony Swarzak is just fantastic. And Webb is someone who I don't believe in long-term, but he's been, he's been good. Um, their bullpen has actually been knock on wood, pretty solid over like the last month. But I think looking at it too, it's like, if you were to look at that Braves team right now and they, and you know, be like, okay, what, what is the biggest area of potential? Another starting pitcher. Team? It's the bullpen. I don't know. I, I think it'd be another starter. Okay. Like okay. Tehran's done. Fulton Evich. Okay. Is, I can, I can buy um, that is done that that one's gone um i don't know you go up and down the list and i just freed starting to get hit a little bit it's really just soroka that you, you're confident in come playoff time yeah and that's going to be an issue when he when also he hits gosman gone Lucum's kind of in and out of the rotation i'm I, I just that rotation is okay that's is that's fair shaky let's just say that that's fair that's fair but i do think that the braves would be a team that's probably going to be looking in on relief options anyway um, unless they feel like they just want to take guys like Bryce Wilson and Tuki Toussaint 
and the kind of other stable of young dudes they have down there and just be like, okay, you're just a reliever for the box for the back half of the season because that's where we need you right now. And we'll get you back on the starting track, you know, for next season. Yeah. So, but I think with the Nationals, I mean, the nice thing with them is like, yeah, they're back in the race. You know, they've somehow managed to climb out of that hole when they were like the fourth worst team in the National League. Um, and it, it is built on sustainable stuff because it's, you know, Rendon is healthy and Soto is playing better and Turner is healthy and Max Scherzer is a superhuman. So, you know, it, it, this isn't stuff where it's like you're seeing like, oh, all of a sudden Howie Kendrick is hitting 700. You know, it's not built on stuff like that. And there's room for them to be better. You know, Strasburg can be better. Patrick Corbin. Um, well, we had a you know, kind of iffy June, but, you know, he could be a little better. The bullpen can be improved. Um, Robles can, can pick it up in the second half. Adam Eaton can be more than just a league average player. Maybe, maybe, okay, maybe not that one so much, but you know, there's still room for improvement, you know, and then certainly it helps. Like you mentioned the NL East, the Phillies have kind of fallen apart a little. Um, I, although I think at this point, you know, I don't know how many games the Nats and the Braves have left head to head over the rest of the season, but you know, the, obviously the national path right now is the wild card. Which is tight, you know. It's it's the Nats, it's the Phillies, it's the Cubs, it's the, it's the Pirates, sort of. It's the Cardinals. It's you know, the Rockies, it's the Diamondbacks, it's the Padres. There are a lot of teams in that NL wild card mix. So certainly, if you're the Nats, I mean, your 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 focus has to be on the division, you know, because that that wild card race is a tough one. It's actually kind of fun. We actually have functional wild card races in both leagues. It, it less so, I think, in the AL because you really only have the Rays, the Red Sox, the Indians, the Rangers, and the A's. Well, I guess that's what. How many teams did I just say? I think there's so, six? Yes. Five? Mm-hmm. Five or six? Yeah, okay, that's not that bad. Either way, um, but yeah, the Nationals doing better. Um, doing better, believably so. Now the question is, which somehow the Nationals always end up at this point where they come to the deadline at like 500, and you know you don't know if they're going to sell or buy, and they end up doing neither because that front office never wants to sell and but doesn't seem to have the green light ever to buy. So... Yeah, we'll have. This is a team we'll have to wait and see kind of what they do through July because they certainly could get better if they make the right moves. It's just a matter of you know actually making the right yeah. moves. Um, when you were talking about run differential, and I was just looking at certain things as you were talking there. Um, the Orioles, who won twenty six to nothing in a combined two game uh, situation over the weekend, their run differential is still negative two hundred sixty three. I love that they blew out. Yeah, um, who was it that they just murdered over the weekend? Yeah, the Indians. They beat the Indians thirteen to nothing two right. games in a row, and they're still minus two sixty three, which is a league worse by a hefty margin. The Tigers are right behind them at negative two hundred twenty seven. But I love the Orioles negative two sixty three after the, it. <laughs> the Orioles. The Orioles are losing their games by an average of two runs a game, which is ridiculous. That's that's an enormous margin over the course of the that season. Is, that is fantastic. Um, oh my god. And also, if you're buying a lot of Brave stock, run differential is not their, not the nicest thing. Um, if you're looking to run differential, like nobody in the yeah. NL East, it's. I remember, I, I remember how we we spent all offseason being like the NL East is going to be this crazy competitive division. You know, it's going to be a, a gauntlet. It's going to be so hard, and it's just it's just like the Braves are just kind of slowly running away from teams that just cannot stop tripping over right. their own feet. I just keep like, waiting for the Phillies to do something. I just. I, I still I will go down with the ship that the Phillies are going to continue doing drastic things like when they traded for Real Muto and signed Bryce Harper. Like I just that team is starved for a playoff run. I just I can't. We're just 
we're all just poking Bryce Harper with a stick, being like, do something yeah. already. And like you said with Machado, it's it, it, we should expect him to do something again. You should expect Bryce Harper to figure it out because he's Bryce Harper. You should, although I would recommend anyone who wants to know a little more about why his season has been so rough. Uh, Mike Petriello of MLB.com, their resident stat cast guru, had a very interesting thing he published last week, I believe, maybe earlier this week, about how pitchers have pretty much just started obliterating Harper with high fastballs late in the count and are just kind of throwing him off speed and breaking balls early and just really just just kind of screwing with him all the way around. Um, I, that's a It's a really good look at kind of what what Harper's problem is. is he just is striking out at a ridiculous rate. So, Yeah, it's not good, but um, I, I'm still hopeful, and as a resident Bryce Harper stan, I will, I will ride with my guy and hope that he turns it around. Um, last couple things, and also, shout out to Juan Soto. 144, way to run to create a plus after a rough start, and the forgotten young superstar in the NL East, I think. Juan Soto. So, good. Yeah, which is crazy considering how good he was last year that people have already just kind of... And he was younger passed, than Acuna. Like, he was 19. Like... Yeah, yeah. crazy, right? Um, but that's what happens when you're on bad teams. That's people don't care. The Mike Trout effect. Um, pitchers who did not pan out the way we expected. Friend of the pod, Dan Sombrowski, talked about this in a piece on fan graphs. Um, both sides of the aisle there where it's like the, the guys that they assumed were going to be terrible and they were not. And then the ones that uh, they assumed, or they projected, not assumed, were going to be good, and were not. Um, were there any names that stood out to you of like, wow, how did that happen? What what is going on there? You know, that's a. I mean, I guess the Orioles as a whole, but like, um, I don't. I mean, the, the Dan Straley thing, not good. Like I. This is this is what I mean. Dan Straley's not a good pitcher. He has, I don't think, really ever in his career been considered a good pitcher, a fine pitcher, an average pitcher. Sure, you know, a guy he's managed to hang around the league for eight years. His best season was in 2016 with the Reds. Reds pitchers, this always happens. Um, when he had a sub four ERA, but his peripheral said he should have had a five ERA. So even then, but like. It's not that I expected Dan Straley to be good, especially not on the Orioles, but holy hell. 9.82, baby. And it wasn't like, even like they expected him to be good. The consensus ERA was 4.98. <laughs> Dan Straley gave up 22 home runs in 47 and two-thirds innings. <laughs> That's impossible. That shouldn't be able to happen. Oh, man. That's, he almost gave up as many home runs as he had strikeouts. Um... But I think I'm just looking at the you know the kind of worst projections list. I mean, these are all guys you you would have expected to be bad, though. I think the only real surprise for me in terms of like, well, Kluber obviously, but I think Kluber was not, wasn't healthy, and now he's you know he is not healthy. I think the Kyle the Freeland? one the one that I thought was going to be you know Freeland. I think Freeland we expected to come back to earth, maybe not to that level, but certainly given that Coors has just gone lunatic this season, I think there's probably more going on there than we're seeing. To me, the one I, I kind of pegged as a breakout potential starter this season who just was, got torched was Corbin mm. Burns, a guy who's got really great stuff, um, who throws really hard, who has a wipeout slider, and instead has just spent this season getting his brains beaten in. All Australia just giving up, he's giving up three home runs per nine. Um, and so the Brewers, I mean, they put him back in the bullpen, and maybe you know, maybe maybe that's just where he needs to be. 
Um, but I know I was just disappointed that Corbin Burns was as bad as he was. On the other side of it, um, you know, it's there are a lot of relievers here where it's like, eh, like reliever performance is so variable that I wouldn't exactly have been stunned. Like, okay, I didn't see Shane Green having an ERA under one, but Shane Green's not a bad pitcher either. You know, relievers can just have great seasons sometimes. That just happens because they're relievers. They pitch only 60 innings a year, and so, you know, it's there's a better chance you're going to be able to put together out of nowhere, I guess, 60 great innings or 60 innings better than you would have thought would have come. I think the one to me is Lucas mm. Giolito. Giolito, I mean, granted, the, the stuff was always there. The pedigree was always there. The prospect status was always there. But he was, no joke, the worst pitcher in baseball last year. He did not look like he knew what he was doing, you know? He could not throw strikes. He had no, his velocity was shot. He just, you know, he had nothing going for him. And then all of a sudden he has become the guy we all thought he was going to be. So that one is stunning. And Mike Miner too, where that's a dude who has, you know, and, and you'll be able to, you know, give some insight. And this is one of those former super Braves prospects along with Brandon Beachy. Brandon Beachy. That is a name let, I have not we, heard in a long time. Let me know Chris when these Medlin? names get too painful. Um, Chris Medlin, you know, that whole that would be golden generation of Braves pitchers where they God none damn. of them panned out because they all got hurt. But Miner is a dude who like he was bad for the for the Rangers last year. He had been good for the for the Royals purely in a relief role the year before. And then when the Rangers kind of decided okay he's gonna be a starter now, I was like, well why? He was so good as a reliever. Why would you make him a starter again? And he was purely like just he was a little better than league average last year. But that was, was their like, plan. Okay, but you know, is that really? Did you read the stuff on John Daniels and like that's why they pinpointed him? That their plan was to they saw something where they're like we can fix this, and that's what they did with Lance Lynn too. And like who does yeah. to them? Because you would not, you would not right. see that coming from the Texas Rangers who have to play half their games in their crazy, crazy ballpark, and especially not with guys like Mike Miner and Lance Lynn who are in their thirties and who you know they've been around the block enough where it's like. Those aren't guys where you look at them and they're like, there's something right. else in there. Like maybe minor because a long time ago he was going to be, he was supposed yeah. to be a star, you know? And I guess to a lesser extent, Lynn, um, although Lynn certainly like, you know, Mike minor was a top 10 pick in his draft. Oh man. I just remember the first rounder. Um, and he, like, I think Lynn, Lynn's ceiling was always supposed to be like kind of a capable middle, the middle of the rotation guy. But like, Minor to me, it's like kudos to the, the Rangers for seeing something there that they thought they could that they thought they could um, fix. You know, because you're just looking at his, you know, looking at like for example, just his pitch usage. You know, there's nothing that really kind of super jumps out. He's throwing more changeups this year and slightly fewer fastballs. But it's not, it's not as if he got to the Rangers and they were like, we're just going to be throwing an entirely new pitch. They just made him stop throwing his sliders so much. Which is weird because normally it's like most most teams at this point are like no 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 throw more of your slider throw less of your fastball more of your slider and so the Rangers are like no fewer sliders from you, which is also weird because the slider is a really good pitch when he's a reliever. So I don't know. This is something where again I'd be I'd be very interested in talking to Mike Miner about okay what was the big change what did you know what was what kind of made this all click because this is very much out of nowhere I think. Yeah, but I think if you ask John Daniels, I I mean I'm sure you'd have to inject him with some sort of truth serum, but I think that was their plan and just the stuff I'm like, "Ah, eh, 
I mean, to go that outside of the box with Miner and to invest a year and a half into making him a good starter and all that kind of stuff, I I don't know. I, I believe Miner more than Lynn, but uh, cool for them, and it's a good uh, thing to point out that, like, hey, um, organizational structure matters and uh, scouting like that and just being like, hey, we can flip this guy. We can find ways to resurrect certain careers and we just see we saw something here and we're gonna bet on our player development and their player development uh put together a one-two punch of lynn and minor in 2019 that's one of the league's best like it's not scherzer strasburg but it's top five like in fip they are top five as a one-two punch as of this this recording so shout out to them and the rangers for finding something and also tyler glasnow uh not a good look for the pirates this year um the Chris no, that- trade is that looking Archer worse trade, and worse. That Archer trade really is that's just been a disaster. Um, and you kind of you kind of felt like that was going to be the case when it got made last year because you know the Rays are such a smart organization where they got a guy like Glasnow who has crazy stuff but just didn't seem to have like um, didn't really seem to have kind of a way to get it together that you kind of felt like it's the same way like when a guy gets traded to the Astros where you just kind of rub your hands in anticipation and you're like how are they going to make him awesome. Um, but yeah, that, that trade has been a total nightmare for them. And I can't say I'm terribly surprised. You know, the pirates just seem to be kind of backwards. They seem to be kind of stuck in a weird past that they can't get out of. Um, I didn't understand that trade when it happened. I understand it even less now, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not what you want to, to, to quote Joe Girardi. It's, it's not what you want. All right. Last thing we'll wrap up here. Um, the Yankees, tell me about this new sensation. What's going on here? Uh, their dude named Jason, who is a weird spelling of Jason, because mm-hmm. he's apparently named after Jason Giambi, which I love. Oh, that's a real thing. I saw that on Twitter. So that's a thing? Yeah, that's, um, so Jeff Passan wrote a whole thing about him for ESPN, about this, you know, Mondo 16-year-old, who Jason Dominguez is the kid's name. Um, they call him the Martian because he's not from this world. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, like he's getting like trout comparisons at the age of sixteen, and the Yankees spent five million dollars on him, and which cool I guess like you know I, I it's cool to it's cool to see that I guess it's cool to hear the the you know the hype, although again he is sixteen years old like I am not going to let myself get caught up or like get carried away with stuff about a sixteen year old hitter. There is a long, long way between now and when he might have be a major league player, if that ever happens. I also just find it weird to get like super hype about the July two guys, given all the like all the stories and news we hear about how that system is so hideous and like um, exploitative and just ruthless. Like on the one hand, to have these stories come out about like trainers are taking kids in as young as like twelve or thirteen. And MLB teams are just increasingly ignoring the rules around like when they're allowed to sign these guys. And of course, all the rumors you hear about, you know, teenagers getting pumped full of steroids and whatever else so that they can, you know, make a better impression early on because trainers don't want to keep these kids on forever. Um, And of course, the just the weird, staggering economic inequality of it all. And on the other hand, to be like, yeah, but the 16 year old kid's going to be the next trout. It's like, this isn't stuff to celebrate, you know? which not to be like a killjoy about it, but it's like, it is just weird. It is weird to me because we have, we are getting kind of more like, for lack of a better phrase, woke about the July two stuff and how like, we're just kind of 
horse trading teenagers and how weird that is. Um, and um, and two, it's also like, again, I, I I'm just not going to get too. Well, like, correct me if I'm up. wrong. Isn't this kind of the norm in just soccer across the world? Like this, it is. is but the thing is, those those kids when they get signed get. I mean, they get put into development academies. And right. I don't know. I don't know exactly how it works with regards to soccer and their whole kind of weird signing thirteen year olds thing. And certainly, like when it comes to high level athletics, like teenagers are just going to get exploited everywhere. Like, you know, you have yeah that's exists in baseball, the perfect game stuff. It exists in basketball with AAU stuff. I imagine it exists in football to a certain degree. Um, it is what it is. You know, if you're really good at, at playing your sport at a particular age, you're going to get funneled into a machine earlier so that you can get onto a professional career sooner. Um, I don't know. I, I just find the July 2 stuff to be just kind of a gross, like, I don't know. It, it just feels gross to me in a way that I, I guess I have a hard time explaining, probably because my thoughts aren't fully formed on it. But it's, I mean, it's, it's a, I, I, if, if this kid is what he is supposed to be, I mean, that's, that's exciting. I guess, you know, we'll have a new that's superstar. It's a lot of pressure on a 16 year old kid. It is. It's a scary amount of pressure. And hopefully it's not something that like, you know, cripples him mentally because that would be a shame. It's, that's, I guess that's the thing too. It's like these kids should be allowed to just be, you know, and not have these, huge expectations for him. I mean, good for him for getting $5 million, you know, great. I'm, I'm glad that that exists, but the whole international market and the way MLB runs it and the whole system that exists is just, just gross on a lot of levels that I just don't like and can't, again, can't really enunciate well, but I just, it just makes me feel kind of squicky, you know? Yeah. There's gotta be like a middle ground. There's gotta be a way of figuring out, um, not the college for how where the kids don't get paid and all that kind of stuff and the waste time and developmental and while universities make a bunch of money and this is my biggest thing with college sports and just and seeing college baseball get bigger and bigger is kind of concerning for me because I wonder if that the uh, just the NCAA sees this of like maybe we can turn this into revenue sports I think ratings were up um, and they I think ESPN had their highest graded baseball game was the Vanderbilt Michigan final even over like Red Sox Yankees so. I I don't know if that's like going to be a bigger and bigger thing, but um, then you look at the flip side of like, okay, well, there's like 16 year olds are getting pegged and signed and um, getting compared to Trout and all this other post July second stuff that you're talking about, like that's weird. So I I don't know. I don't know how we fix all this. It's very complicated, and I I don't know. Like you, my thoughts are not fully formed on all of this, but um, I think baseball is just going to be interesting to to monitor over the next couple of years and um we, we're all talking about the just free agency and what's going on there but maybe this is the next interesting thing to to see is what they do about um these teams just scouting these young kids and signing them and um i i don't know i i think it's it's going to be interesting to see if this becomes a bigger thing and we we talk more and more about this and they have to address it yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens with this. All right, John. Well, do we have anything that we need to read from you this week? Um, no, no, I think I'm, you know, I got my awards thing that I mentioned, I think, earlier, but that's, you know, we kind of talked that through already. So if you want to read me talk, if you want to read me writing more about awards stuff, you can go find that on the AL Awards race. Um, my nine innings column runs every week, although it will not be out next week because of the all-star break. I am taking an all-star break as well. I'm not going to the all-star game. I'm taking a short vacation because 
Uh, it's good to get away from the grind every now and then. Uh, Are you going no, anywhere? I'm going to Montreal. I'm get out of okay. this. Get out of this country for a little bit. Go somewhere a little, <laughs> a little nicer, a little more polite. Um, all I know about Montreal uh, is based entirely on the movie The Whole Nine Yards. That is a very random cultural frame of reference for the city of Montreal. <laughs> I've never seen I The Whole Nine Yards, so I don't, they put I mayo don't know. on sandwiches, and that, that drove Matthew Perry's character crazy. Well, they do that. And not it, Matthew Perry. It was the other one. It was Bruce Willis's character. That they, do that a lot in, they do that a lot in Europe, so that doesn't surprise me they do it in Montreal, because Montreal's got that very old-world European sensibility. But... Mm. Uh, other than the award stuff and nine endings, which just went out today, um, no, I mean, you know, with the holiday coming up, it's going to be kind of a quiet week, I think for us, but, uh, you know, certainly check in next week for SI for all our all-star coverage and all the things we're going to be doing. And, uh, and then of course, once the all-star break is over, then we got trade deadline stuff and that's going to be exciting. Trade deadline. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hell yeah, John. All right. Well, we will look out for that. Enjoy your vacation. You've earned it, sir. And oh, thank you. Uh, if you're not already reading John on SI.com slash MLB, what are you doing? I do it every day. John, thank you as always, sir. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you, man. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second and leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.